I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive Podcast. It's our final episode in the current series of Screen Talks, and we're going out with a bang. With actor Richard E. Grant on top form, marking the release of his 2018 film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? That film is discussed in detail here, but because this is Richard E. Grant, one of British cinema's greatest all-time raconteurs, you can also expect to come away with plenty of other viewing suggestions besides. Grant's very first film role is a cult classic. He played the flamboyantly drunk title character in 1987's With Nail and I, but it took another three decades before he bagged his first Academy Award nomination. That was for Can You Ever Forgive Me? and Q&A host Edith Bowman congratulates him here. Can You Ever Forgive Me? is adapted from the memoir of the same name by literary forger and misanthrope Lee Israel, played in the film by Melissa McCarthy. Grant co-stars as Israel's sometime friend and co-conspirator Jack Hock, another alcoholic who'd have no problem matching with nail wine for wine. It's a strange coincidence, given that Grant himself is a lifelong teetotaler, as he explains. Being a non-drinker has never got in the way of Grant's social life, however. He's particularly amusing on his method for making fast friends with celebrities, not least co-star McCarthy. The lack of information about the real Jack Hock in Israel's memoir meant Grant had to rely on his own personal life to inform the character. As fans of Grant's 2005 semi-autobiographical film Wawa will appreciate, there's no shortage of material there. One surprising source of influence is the late Scottish actor Ian Charlson, star of 1981 Oscar Best Picture winner Chariots of Fire. Grant's filter-free conversation style seems to inspire a similar sense of liberation in the Q&A audience. Be warned, as well as some surprising propositions, you're about to hear some especially strong language that is definitely not suitable for sensitive listeners. Can we ever forgive him? When a guest is this entertaining, it's pretty hard not to. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Richard E. Grant. (laughs) It feels only right that we should start off by saying... Congratulations on your nomination for an Oscar today. Thank you. To add to the the many nominations you've had already and wins already as well. Completely out of body experience. So, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm a 61 and three quarter year old nominee virgin. 
So, you know, to have all this happen now in my sixth decade, you know, 40 years in show business is a complete astonishment to me. And I know I should be blasé about it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm absolutely fucking thrilled. <laughs> As you should be. I, I've seen the film a few times and it's an absolutely wonderful film, wonderful You're paid story. To. Uh, not the three times I've seen it at the cinema I paid. Okay. Um, and in the back, I popped in just here to see the last sort of 15 minutes, just to, to hear the atmosphere in this room. And it's wonderful. I'm sure you guys felt it in terms of it's quite a, a special atmosphere that this film creates in a room. And I wanted to find out if you had a sense of that when you were making the film and, and when it had finished, when you'd finished making it, that this was something that was going to resonate and connect with people. We honestly had no idea because when I when I read the script, I thought, well, it struck me I was trying to find an immediate movie parallel and because of my age, I thought it was the odd couple, Neil Simon's 1967 mm. masterpiece with Walter Matthau and uh, Jack Lemmon mixed with John Schlesinger's amazing Midnight Cowboy of John Voight and Dustin Hoffman in that you've got two completely opposite characters operating in Manhattan as densely populated as it is and as rich as it is, and yet you can be destitute and unutterably lonely and isolated. So I thought, well, who is going to buy the story of a gay guy that's HIV positive, that's you know, a cocaine addict and sells stuff and you know, scadges off everybody else, and Lee Israel, who's misanthropic and can't stand any other human being in sight? <laughs> How do you sell that to an audience? But when we were at Telluride Film Festival up this mountainside in Colorado, a ski resort, we went to the first world screening, it was called, at four o'clock in the afternoon. And Melissa McCarthy and I watched it with an audience for the first time. And you could feel in the room that where there might have been an expectation that it was going to be a Melissa McCarthy vehicle for a sort of big comic. Melissa McCarthy playing Lee Israel rather than mm. Lee Israel playing Melissa McCarthy, if you, if you imagine that. So people laughed quite a lot at the beginning. And then we could hear people... You know, audibly, it being America, you could hear people crying at the end. So we knew that something had happened in there that, mm. and within two hours, the reviews in The Hollywood Reporter and Variety had come out. And so we knew that something had happened. And in this ski lodge place and just walking the streets, people are very tactile and hands-on. They would come up to us. Melissa and I say, your movie really made us feel something. We felt something. We love these guys. We rooted for them. So um, my accent is terrible. So I thought, well, that was, that was something that, that maybe, you know, if you're watching Wolverine or tentpole movies with Marvel comics, the fact that people were pointing out that they identified with the loneliness of these people or they said, I knew somebody who was like that or the way that it deals with friendship outside of family or who you're married to or related to or whatever, that seems to be the thing that people have connected with, for which we're very grateful and astonished. Did you have an instant connection with Jack when you read the script? Uh, I did, well, I thought, well, he's an alcoholic, so I thought, well, I played one of those 32 years before. <laughs> so it wasn't rocket science to work out uh, why I might have been on the list. And he's also, on paper, very unsympathetic. And I know that there's a tradition in America for leading leading men in America not wanting to play those kinds of parts. So I thought well, it would have made sense that they were asking a Brit, and we're cheaper. Um, <laughs> How rude. So, no, it's just, you know, it's <laughs> colonialism in reverse. I understand that <laughs> profoundly. 
So, uh, oh, I like this smashing of applause for that. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I read the script, I thought that uh, Lee Israel's memoir would have a fountain of information about Jack Hawk, but there was very, very little because mm. she's so egocentric and only wanted to write about herself. Um, so, other than that, I knew that he was tall, blonde, 47, which I'm not, obviously, and he was from Portland in Oregon, he used a little cigarette holder, and was very good at scamming people out of a lot of money for these letters once she'd been rumbled by the FBI. So other than that, there was, there was not much in the memoir to go on. So essentially, Jeff Whitty and Nicole Holofcenter's script and them meeting people that knew both of them, that filled in the gaps. And from my life experience, I was very inspired by a Scottish actor called Ian Charlson, who was the lead in Chariots of Fire, which came out in 1981. And I'd worked with Ian, and we were friends. And he died of AIDS at the age of 40 in 1990. And he had this amazing combination of little boy lost charm on the one hand, scabrous wit, and the most louche and promiscuous life on the other. And I thought, there's something in between all that that is somehow in Jack Hawk. So that's, that's kind of what I went for, and really reacted off everything that Melissa McCarthy gave, which was an enormous amount. This wonderful partnership that we watch on screen, it's, I, I mean, I hope it's the first of many films that the pair of you will do together because it is wonderful, Thank wonderful you. to watch. How did you find that kind of drive between those two characters? Was that an instant thing with Melissa and you? Well, you, you hope that that's going to happen, but, you know, I think it's like internet dating or any kind of dating where you hope that, you know, the person you've written about on the paper and you actually see them and you go, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> or that you're going to have some connection with them. And I arrived there on a Wednesday for costume fittings and makeup tests and things. And I said, well, what time am I rehearsing with Melissa? And Marielle Heller, the director, said, oh, no, she's so busy. She's only coming in LA from L.A. on Friday and she has costume, makeup, wig fittings all day. You won't even meet her till you meet her on Monday for the first time. And I said, no, you have no idea the depths of my paranoia. It is not possible. I will not sleep for 72 hours. Can I please at least meet her just to find out you know, at what level she's going to pitch her part? So mercifully, Melissa had the exact same impulse. And we met on a Friday morning for two hours, discussed everything, and had lunch together, and then started working on Monday. And it was one of those things where it felt, I've said this before, it felt like lightning in a bottle because I knew very, very, within seconds that there was a profound connection, whether it was because I grew up in a small town in you know, Southeast Africa and she grew up on a farm outside Chicago. Maybe their small town or isolated sensibility, whatever it is, we just had a connection and that obviously bore fruit and hopefully, because we know from the reaction that we've had, that has transmitted into what happens on screen. So and that's luck as much as anything. Mm. Whilst you're filming, how long was the shoot? Uh, 26 days. Wow. And I was on it for 20. Wanted to be in 26 days, but <laughs> they didn't make my part big enough. But uh, we got on so well that I, you know, I would go and have lunch and dinner with her at every opportunity. So we really were connected. And she's having my twins in August, so it's really worked out. <laughs> Don't laugh, it's true. But is it not almost like a year to the day, pretty much, that... Did you see the 20th of January last year, was it, that you... We started. You started. Yeah. And that's an amazing turnaround. Oh, I never out. think of that. Yeah. Yes. You can do maths. I got 4% <laughs> in my math mock O-level in 1973. But thank you for that, Einstein. 
But whilst you were in this 20-odd day shoot and stuff, would it, would it be, would you and Melissa, you know, at the end of the day, once you'd worked on, on scenes and filmed scenes, would you talk about it? Would you decompose, decompress the day? In any decompose? Way? <laughs> yeah. Um, decompress? Yeah. No, no, we never did. And when we had lunch together, we never talked about the, the stuff. We were always gassing about everybody else. And Amazing. Talking about who we knew in common and... Uh, yeah, all that stuff. All show. She got very, she was envious of the amount of socialising that I did because I know people in New York, and because she had to work every day and had so so much, so many more lines than I did. I went to a Broadway show every single night or dinner with somebody. <laughs> so every day she said, "And who have we been out with tonight?" And I said, "Well, Steve Martin and Tom Hanks. Fuck it." So you know, she got very, very, and she said, "How do you know all these people?" And I said, "Come on, you know, I just if you're there for twenty days, there are enough people that you can look around." And I'm such a tart. If I see somebody on Broadway, I think he's brilliant. I'll go up afterwards and go, "Hi, I'm from London, Swaziland. I think you're great. Can we have a drink?" And most often. The Americans say, yeah, go to Joe Allen. So I did. So I made many new friends, like a complete prostitute, really. So. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's almost like a bit of life imitating art slightly. With the, I was completely with the... taken over with the character Jack Cock, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah method. Um, what do you think Melissa's connection... That's a great answer. I haven't thought of that before. There you go. Okay. Well, um, what do you think Melissa's connection to Lee was... What did she want to tell about this character? What well, first she... of all, she slept her way to getting this part, quite literally. I kid you not, because Julianne Moore and Chris O'Dowd were cast when Nicole Holocenter, who co-wrote the screenplay, was going to direct it two years ago. Then there was nuclear fallout for whatever reason, which I don't know about. And then Ben Falcone, who plays one of the shady booksellers who demands 5,000 bucks from her in order to not grass her to the FBI, he is married to Melissa... So he was the common denominator from both sets of casts. And Melissa then read it once she'd heard that the movie had gone down and said, God, I'd love to play this part. So once she got attached to it, it then got resurrected. Mm -hmm. So she essentially was sleeping with a co-actor in the thing and then casting couched her way into <laughs> getting, getting the thing made. So, and she... She has said this many times, but she absolutely loved the fact that the script was so unequivocal about playing a misanthropic, somebody who was so authentically herself and didn't give in to anything. She didn't care what she looked like or what she said about anything. And she said, for a middle-aged woman in the movies, the opportunity to play a role like that, which isn't sentimentalized or glamorized in any way, she thought was so remarkable and... It's very satisfying that people root for her, even even though she is so miserable <laughs> and you know not high on the hygiene stakes. <laughs> so I met I met an actor at the Screen Actors Guild screening in New York last week who came up afterwards and said, "I knew Lee Israel," and we were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, what?" And he said, "Oh, she was far worse than anything that <laughs> Melissa did," and we loved that. So um, and she said to Jeff Whitty who went up to her in the Julius Bar and said, I am the person who's written the screenplay of your life. And he had gone over to her wearing an Alice band that had bunny ears on it. And she said, well, I like your screenplay, but you look like a fucking idiot. Get out of my face. And he's, he just dined out on that for years. He was so <laughs> thrilled to be insulted by her. So... You've worked with an amazing collection of directors in your career so far. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about working with Marielle on this 
the film and what that experience was like? Well, first of all, she cast me, um, for which I'm eternally grateful. And she wears her authority very, very lightly. And she had been an actor and then directed the film version of Diary of a Teenage Girl, which I so admired. And she is so collaborative, nurturing, accommodating, and such a good mensch that I would do anything for her. And she just directed Tom Hanks in the movie called Mr. Rogers about this 1970s television host that I didn't know about, who's, you know, the icon in American childhoods. So she's well on her way, you know, although I'm absolutely gutted for her that she's not been nominated as a director. And it's all men this year, again, in the Academy. But um, because, you know, I have to beg the question, who directed Melissa and I into these performances that have been nominated? But Mariel Heller did. So, you know, but she is very gracious about all that and still very young, so, you know. Right, over to you. Um, please don't do that thing where I go, who's got a question? Well, it's very late. And, uh, and then I go, last question, and everyone puts their hands up. So who would like to ask a question? Hello, sir. Yeah, hello. Might as well go first. Firstly, I'd like to say I think you definitely deserve the Oscar, and I'm going to be fingers crossed rooting for you on that night. Thank you. And like you said, this lightning in a bottle, this natural chemistry the two of you have, fantastic on screen. What I'm interested in is whether there are some really lightning in a bottle moments that came about through improvisation that sort of veered away from the script. Uh, thank you for your question. Are you an actor? Uh, no, but hopeful filmmaker. Okay. I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Please take my card. Uh, I will. Um, you think I'm kidding. I worked at John Gilgood, who you won't know who he was, but when he was 94 and I was on a movie called Portrait of Lady, I said, Sir John, what, you know, what's your advice for a younger actor? He said, cultivate younger friends. <laughs> and I see the, the virtue of that. But uh, there was no improvising in the thing at all, apart from two words that when I first appeared in the Julius Bar and met Lee Israel, in the first take I said, Jack Hock, Big Cock. And where that came from, I have no idea. Um, but Mario Heller then, when I did the second take, she said, You've, I didn't say the words again, I don't know where they came from, and she said, you haven't said those two words. And I said, well, and she said, no, they're in. So they made it to the movie. So we're in Writers Guild arbitration at the moment for credit. But thank you for your question. So those were the only two words that were improvised, as far as I know. Did it make it into the trailer? No, I think they were appealing to a family audience. So. <laughs> Do you enjoy the opportunity to ad lib? Is that is that something you yeah, like? The experience? Because I worked with Robert Altman, the late great Robert Altman, three times on Gossip Park, Pret a Porter, and uh, the Player, and he. He loved a structured fr um, script and framework for the thing, but then he loved people to improvise around that. And those conditions, uh, working with a great ensemble of actors like he always collected around him, that's the ideal. Yeah, because as a, you, know, you, you really feel that you can add stuff. In something particular like Gosford Park, where the camera may well be on you and someone in the forefront of the shot, but everything in the background is still as important. So yeah. it's this wonderful thing where all the layers of that shot have that opportunity to, to play, I guess. Exactly. I've ju I just done a, a series that I shot all of my all six episodes in one morning called Hang Ups with uh, Steve Mangan that was on uh, Channel 4 playing his psychiatrist. And I it was, I, I, I had a, a laptop 
and he Skyped me from another room, and I gave him all this, you know, psycho filth <laughs> on screen. Every single word of it was improvised, which was just fantastically <laughs> exciting to do. I love that. Anyway. Take note. Just yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, more questions. Here we go. Yes, see, the arms have warmed up now. This is great. Hello, Richard. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Hi. What's your name? Uh, my name's Simon. Hi, Simon. I just had to ask because with Nile is one of my favourite characters in any film ever. Thank and you. you mentioned uh, playing earlier. I just wondered whether the character of Jack ever crossed characters with, with Nile in your mind or whether you approached him from a completely fresh angle. Oh, thanks for coming. Um, well, they're both alcoholics. And if you have the same actor playing them, there's, you know, inevitably there's going to be a crossover that I didn't particularly see, but because he seemed, Withnail struck me as so entitled, misanthropic, and so pig-headed and couldn't give a fuck about anybody else. Whereas Jack Hawk is always like Labrador-like on the scam and trying to, you know, lick people into submission for a free bed, bonk or booze. So... Um, he just seems much more compassionate, and his hedonism is to live every moment of the day, whereas Withner was kind of on a suicide mission to nowhere. But um, anyway, thank you for bringing them up. I, I'm just grateful that there's a 32-year gap between that drunk and this one. <laughs> thank you. And did we have someone else up there with... Yes. Oh, yeah, okay, there we go. You've got Only the mic ready. Only that may ask a question. <laughs> Hi, Richard. Hi, what's your name? My name is Tom. Hi, Tom. I think you're great. Can we get a drink? I only do drugs. <laughs> I'm a hopeless drinking partner because I'm allergic to alcohol. So, you know, I've, somebody's I've drinking Diet Coke or water is not really going to be a, a livening evening. It's okay. But it's thank you for the offer, Tom. I wanted to tell you that I very much enjoyed your film diaries with Nails. Thank you. Uh, and I wonder if you're writing anything currently that we might read at some point. Well, I've kept, I've, a diary. Right, so. I've kept a diary, thank you, for, since I was 10 years old, since witnessing my mother's adultery on the front seat of a car that I wasn't supposed to see. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't tell anybody else. So really, diary writing has been a way of trying to keep myself sane and making what seems unreal, real. And today especially, I will have a volume of stuff to write down because, you know, this, this has never never happened to me before and it's never going to happen again so in writing about it you it's a way of just kind of going this did actually happen i was in the pit at the thing and i was asked that question or you know I, all, all the stuff that's going on so the irony is that this film took 26 days to shoot in total of which i did 20 and i've been on the awards campaign trail and q and a's and things for five months <laughs> which is astonishing and the beauty of that is you don't earn one penny of money during all that, but you are flown around and you know, looked after and five-star hoteled and all of that. But that is as nothing because I would have, you know, I'm grateful to be doing it for nothing because if you're talking about something that people have such a positive response to and it's won so many prizes and nominations, then that really seems like you know, the cream on the cake or whatever you call it. So have I kept a diary all the way through it? Yes, I have. Watch this space. I don't know, but you know, some of the things I've said about people, I probably should be put in jail. So, I don't know. As you can tell, I don't really have the filter between what comes in here and comes out of this bit. But thank you for your question and the offer of a drink. <laughs> We've got a lady down the front here. Be careful. Coming Why? Down the stairs. Why be careful? Coming down the stairs. There's a lot of oh, stairs. They're young. You they might trip. Hello. 
Lady in Red. <laughs> Hi, what's um, her name? Addy. Hi, Addy. First Short for what? Adelina. Adelina. Yes. <laughs> um, first of all, fantastic performance. It was Thank really, you. really brilliant. And also, my question is, did you find any sort of challenges with connecting to the character of Jack? And second question, if I'm allowed, is there anything, any roles that you'd really, really, really like to play next? Uh, how connecting with somebody? I think that, are you an actor? I'd like to be, yeah. Okay. I don't know that you can teach anybody to act. So by that, I mean that once you're in the costume and you have dialogue as cleverly written as, as this screenplay is, then when you react with the person who's playing opposite you, something happens. And what that thing is, I have no idea what it is or I can't rationalize or intellectualize it in, in any way. And I'm always astonished when people can go, well, there was this and there was a subtext of that because it seems to me that once you have all the information and you follow what the script is and the intentions of the characters, you play those actions, that something happens there that to me is a kind of, it seems like magic to me. And when I see other actors do it, I go, how, how do you do that? Now, I've often said, how do you do that? And they go, what the fuck, I don't know what I've done. And I think that's exactly what it is. You don't know. And in not knowing, I think that's, that's the best thing. It's like, if you fall in love with somebody, if you had to try and say, well, it was this and it was that and it was that, already it just, it's like juggling with water and jelly. I don't think you can really do it. And the second part of your question, I'm so old, I can't even remember it now. Um, are there any specific Oh, roles? other roles? Yeah. Oh, I'm like Dobbin the donkey. You know, put the carrot in front of me. And if it's something else that I haven't done without a 32-year gap of drunks, I'll be there and, and going for it. And especially if somebody's turned it down and, and suddenly a part is available. So, yeah. Thank you. But thank you for your question. Okay, we've got a lady here. Hello. Hi, what's your name? Uh, Ruby. Hi, Ruby. Hello. So um, in regards to being challenged for that character, obviously you said you're allergic to alcohol. Yeah. How would one kind of relate to something like that? So say you and McGregor in Trainspotting, how would you kind of substitute those feelings of addiction? Would you? Um, what I've observed in people who do drink is that there comes to that moment where the level of concentration to get out of the door is so intense, and just the focus on that, that everything else kind of goes, and there's also that slight delay that happens that I see, and I thought, well, if you, if you do that, you feel what maybe that seems like, so I don't know, it's basically just yeah. winging it. So observing is... Yeah, and trying to see what it is to try and get through the door without falling over. So, I don't know, I think it's just acting, really. <laughs> as Laurence Olivier says. <laughs> and it's our last question, thank You've you. You've got great hair, yeah. you bastard. Thank you so much. Uh, and saying thank you is really what I want to do. You used two questions, so I'm not really going to say a question, but what I'm going to say is uh, thank you so much for giving me my two favourite moments where somebody calls somebody else a cunt. And, uh, and they're, they're my two absolute favourites of all time. And that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. He had to be Scottish. <laughs> Yes. I can hand on heart tell you that in all the places, in all the bars that I've been, nobody has ever thanked me publicly for saying you terrible cunt in two movies. <laughs> I salute you, sir. I salute you. Oh, amazing. I think that's where we leave it then, Richard, okay. surely. Thank you very much for your time this Thank evening. Thank you. Um, for your the questions. wonderful Mr. Richard E. Grant. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk on Can You Ever Forgive Me with Richard E. Grant. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to listen to the Richard Attenborough Screen Talk from our first series, which also includes plenty of colourful anecdotes from the British film industry. To make sure you don't miss an episode and to support cinema at the Barbican to boot, please rate and subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit barbican.org.uk. Maybe you were in the audience for Richard E. Grant at the Barbican or a guest at an equally brilliant screen talk that you'd like to hear again on the podcast? If so, please come find us and tell us about it at Barbican Centre in all the usual social media places. Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Ellen E. Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We hope to be back with a new series very soon, but in the meantime, be well and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.